Hi and welcome to another episode of Compliance Bytes. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Adam Bateman, co-founder and CEO of Push Securities. It's based in the UK and it focuses on cybersecurity. Adam has been in the business for more than 16 years and what I love about him is that besides being the CEO of a successful company and having a wealth of experience in the industry, he started as a hacker himself when he was young in his bedroom. Adam, welcome to the show. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having so me. So, Adam, we're going to talk a little bit about cybersecurity, which is a, a huge concern to our client base for many different reasons. One, it's become more prominent. And two, as regulated entities, they really need to stay on top of the risks and mitigating those risks. As a general sort of starting point, what's been happening in the cybersecurity industry recently? And how can people keep up to date with the latest trends? Yeah, great question. So I'm taking the second part of that question first. If you're in the industry like I am, there's obviously a ton of different intel and information sharing groups where you can stay right up to date with the latest actual techniques that attackers use. But I'd say for most people, most of the industry would point people at the Verizon Data Breach Report. And this is a report which is compiled annually. It's been going for about 15 years or so. So it's pretty mature and well-trusted. But what they do is they compile the better part of a million incidents and they put all that data together and draw trends from it. So you can get it free from the website. It's a really good place to start. Um, and this year, the actual trends that have come out are the main the main three, I think, that come through the themes are, number one, the uh, ransomware attacks have increased by about 13%, which they have noted is um, as high as the last five years combined. So just, just to explain what I mean by ransomware, ransomware is a type of virus that when it infects the host, it encrypts all the data that it can access. And then the key to decrypt and get that information back is held by the attacker. So you have to pay a ransom to get it back. So it's quite significant for organizations. There's obviously been quite a big spike there. The the other ones are um, 62% of incidents now are related to the partner. Um, So supply chain risk, which is really important because now security isn't just about you, but it's also about the customers and what that, what happens downstream. And, and the third one is not really surprising at all because it's been like this for as long as I can remember, but over 80% of incidents were actually related somehow to the, the human element. So either um, you know falling for a phishing attack, uh, stolen credentials or some kind of error. That's quite a lot of stuff. And I suppose a lot of that made worse through the, the years of COVID. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, Obviously, there's a huge shift that happened there, which was that people started to work from home. And so the normal security controls that were inside the corporate security kind of got turned inside out. A lot more things were put on the Internet, uh, and that definitely had an impact. There were lots of things rushing to happen, lots of change and more human error occurring, which probably exposed a lot of companies uh, from a security perspective as well. So I guess, well, how, how are hackers gaining access into the firm's IT systems? So, I mean, the, the detailed techniques vary quite wildly, but the actual top level MO, if you like, the approaches have, have stayed fairly static. Like, there are really three top level ways. And I think the first two of those are very much on people's radar. The third is, uh, is definitely not something people are thinking about as much. And we're working to raise awareness of that. So <clears throat> the first one is you scan internet facing systems so for example you, know, you identify companies websites mail servers and those sorts of things and then you um, identify vulnerabilities in those 
and use those to sort of go through the firewall into the internal network. And that, that was prevalent in the 2000s. And as an industry, we've got quite good at that, but that um, still does happen today. So attackers then shifted their focus into um, actually targeting an organization's employees directly uh, through what we call a spear phishing attack. So phishing is about tricking an employee to click a link and take some kind of action, like entering their username and password into a, a fake website so the attacker can steal it. Spear phishing is then when that malicious intent is to run a virus of some kind. And when that runs, it then allows the attacker to take control of the uh, the employee's laptop, and then they can perform actions as if they were that employee. So they can then, um, at that point, they can access all the data they can access, they can move laterally inside the network as if they were that employee. And then the third category we're now seeing that people aren't thinking about is actually attacks against SaaS security. And the reason that um, people aren't thinking about it is because people don't tend to think about SaaS, which, by the way, is um, an, an, any software which is not installed on your local laptop is instead a web portal, things like Office 365, Google Workspace. People tend to not think about a lot of those SaaS applications as part of their infrastructure. Um, they think about everything that's sort of hosted inside the company as part of their network. But actually, that is quite a significant now part of their infrastructure. There's 25,000 SaaS companies in total now. Um, and uh, attackers gaining access to those can have quite a significant impact to an organization as well. I mean, that's huge, right, in terms of <clears throat> what you've described, in terms of the, the, the many doors that they that hackers or, or criminals can, can use. I presume just touching on that third one, the SaaS, everything is SaaS today. And I remember the days when no one wanted to be on the cloud and, and you know, we had a small business server in our, in our company. And that always felt safer because you had more controls. And then we were led to believe that, you know, we couldn't really keep up with everything that was happening. So it was not so safe. And in a way, everything on cloud was better. Um, how do you break into a cloud? And if you're a massive internet company, is that literally impossible? And therefore we can rely on that. And when you say there's 25,000 cloud companies, is it the smaller ones that we should be watchful about or is it everyone? Yeah, it's an interesting an interesting shift that happens. There was definitely a nervousness when people went from on-prem, you know, as in physical servers to the cloud, but that has really, part, I mean, everyone has accepted that the shift to cloud has happened. You know, it's, it's where it is. And employees are in a position now where they can self-adopt IT. And it's quite an interesting, uh, it's quite an interesting paradigm shift if you think about it. IT has gone from being centralized you know, underneath the control of IT to becoming decentralized. Um, and now employees are in control of adopting the SaaS platforms uh, across all of those. Now, what's happened as a result of that, though, is that security teams have started to think about security as being someone else's problem, because now it's up to the, the vendor or the owner of those SaaS platforms to do the patching and make sure that their web applications are secured. But the bit that people need to remember is that we still own the user accounts that are created on those. And so if those accounts are weak somehow, like they don't have a strong password or they don't have certain security controls like two-factor authentication um, enabled, they are our responsibility. And so the way attackers will break into those accounts is to use stolen credentials or credentials that have been exposed on the internet through some kind of prior breach and, and actually scan across that list of uh, popular SaaS applications in order to pick off weak user accounts and gain access to those. 
So, so I guess that you know, in terms of what people can do to mitigate the risk of cyber attacks, we're still talking about passwords, like we've been talking about since since software was invented. You know, not not using the name of your pet dog, as it were. Um, Two-factor authentication. I think that's been largely adopted, not always, but we understand that really well. I think now. Having said that, I'm not sure every um, CRM, which is usually on the cloud, as they may be used by many uh, businesses, are necessarily subject to two-factor uh, authentication. And I presume in our world, a lot of this guidance about what to do is is guidance only, and it would come from the FCA or GDPR rules. Um, but so you're still seeing people struggling with such things as as you know account protection whether it's on cloud or, or not and what what do you think we can do in terms of education educating clients about um, security risks or, or best practices yeah we're, we're definitely still seeing it i think um the the rise of phishing and um the awareness of that has, has driven the fact that multi-factor authentication is important and we've definitely done a lot better there, but what we're seeing is that people are applying things like multi-factor authentication and strong passwords against their core SaaS apps that they know about, like Google Workspace, Office 365, and those types of things. But there's such a huge number of SaaS applications coming online every day, and the capabilities of those are increasing so much that there are a ton of SaaS applications that now people don't even know about, they're not even aware. Um, so I read a survey recently that said, you know, 80% of employees will adopt SaaS inside an organization without first getting approval from, from IT or security. And so that you know, potentially you have this SaaS sprawl or shadow IT issue where there are lots of different SaaS platforms spread across the, uh, the internet in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the main thing there is, um, how do you then centralize and get employees to enforce MFA across all those systems where you don't even know about them? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And I suspect the use of working from home laptops and, or even sometimes I assume because you can log into your cloud email system uh, from home using your own desktop, that has increased uh, some of the risk as well as what you're suggesting, which is that some employees are allowed to add a new software, which will help them do X, Y, Z faster. That's on cloud, but nobody's really checking the credentials of that cloud provider or that that's where that software is hosted. Just going back to that one point, though, would one feel safer? And I know we don't want to discriminate against smaller businesses at all, but would one feel at least safe if you were looking at the three top cloud providers within not notwithstanding the account setup and everything else, but within that environment as being less hackable than what would have been your old school premise type server? Is that still a, a valid assumption? It's, uh, it's a difficult one to say. So, so generally speaking, the larger, more established tech players do a lot, lot better job of security. They're way more resourced. They put way more focus in, but also they're a much more lucrative target. So a lot more effort from hacking group goes into a targeting those sorts of vendors. I mean, we've seen this through the years, I mean, the number of viruses and exploits found all the time in the major tech providers. Uh, and even though they have some of the best security teams in the world, they put the most focus on it. Everyone also wants to go for them. So the smaller um, sort of SaaS providers, yes, the security is probably less, but also 
less resource has gone into actually uncovering those issues. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a balance. But on balance, I'd say yeah, larger companies uh, generally put a lot more work into the security side. I mean, certainly what I've seen is that banks have not necessarily uh, gone to the cloud, and that's why they usually use antiquated software because they want to stay within their own premises, still feeling the fear of the cloud. And I wonder if the takeaway from what you're saying is that to a degree you'd think this is justified. Um, you, you mean in terms of um, not moving? Retaining all the software, but which is on premises, I suppose. But I mean, it doesn't allow you to evolve very quickly. So usually it's very rudimentary software, yeah. but, but they're not on the cloud. And I guess you can keep the data safer that way. Yeah, but I mean, the, the attack surface of on-prem uh, you know, kind of installed software is also a lot higher. And as that becomes out of date, it increases more um, issues. Yeah. And so, you know, th there is a there is a bit of a, a thing where in security where there's a balance between security and productivity, and they're sort of opposing forces. And the 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 traditional way of doing security was really security at the expense of productivity. We've now really made a shift, and a lot of security companies are focused on. They understand that they need to not shackle companies and stop them from being productive, but instead help them move forward very quickly and securely. Um, and so that being the case, I would encourage everyone to move to cloud. It is the future. It's the way things are going. The productivity gains are, are huge, but we just need to make sure that we manage the risk of doing that um, at the same time. Earlier on, you were talking about, you know, human error and phishing. So just trying to connect the dots here. Clearly, human error is a massive uh, vulnerability. We talked about account setups and, you know, basic things like, using a proper password. Um, what else can one do to prevent this human error? Yeah, human error is definitely a huge, a huge category of risk. I mean, that Verizon data breach report that I mentioned earlier, they said 82% you know, of the incidents were human error, so it's a big issue. The thing is you can't 100% prevent it. Um, it's really about managing the risk. And the example I like to give to people is, you know, think about... You, you want to publish a really important document or a book and you don't want there to be grammatical or spelling mistakes in that because otherwise it will damage your reputation. You know, Can you tell somebody to write that book and have no issues in it? You can't. It's just humans just work that way. But it's up to you how much effort you want to put in to actually reduce that and improve it. So you can teach people about good grammar and spelling so that they don't introduce the issues in the first place. You can augment it with um, a spell checker to help people along the way. Then you can test it at the end, i.e. you can put multiple rounds of QA and you can reinforce by giving those learnings back to the author so that they actually learn. And it's the same in cybersecurity, right? In a similar way, is that you can give people awareness training to stop them causing issues, but they're still going to. But then you do regular testing, like you know, ethical hacking, vulnerability scan to find the issues and then reinforce and tell people, look, we found an issue in your configuration and this was the exposure and it reinforces that knowledge again yeah so training 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 reminders reminders and it's true that you know we clearly have seen and heard of firms uh, falling for the usual email asking for a specific transfer that looked very legitimate uh, and and we you know this includes very sophisticated firms and it's just mind-boggling what's going on uh, or how easy sometimes it seems to be. Um, so human weakness is definitely an issue. And then in terms of the governing bodies to try to try and push for that, um, what, what do you, I mean, do you interact a little bit with, with certain rules on from certain governing bodies for your client base? Um, the main, so it depends 
mean by governing bodies, but I think the main um, the main kind of I'd say resource that people go to is um, the NCSC, so the National Cybersecurity Centre, which is a government department effectively for public security. They have a ton of really good uh, guidance and advice for, especially for small and medium sized businesses, that is very very well respected. Um, and they have good insights, of course, across the wider industry about the trends that are happening. And they make that advice very, very relevant. But mostly it's incredibly consumable. So most people can just pick that up and they can understand it will tell them the importance of passwords, what a good password is, and all those sorts of things. Um, so as a wider kind of um, that that's kind of where we point people to. That's really good. And I suppose, I, I guess it leads to people needing to spend time and effort um, to try and then procure written information security policies that would embed all of this for their employees and staff to follow. Um, and I guess that would also follow some of the rules on GDPR, which are also very concerned about data breach and therefore cybersecurity, because that's how you know often it's a, it's a way to get data. Um, I suppose if we're looking at the the uh, the world of investment firms. When you're being asked to help or, or prevent such things happening, what are you thinking of in terms of protection, in terms of who could potentially suffer from such an attack and, and how you can help? Yeah, great question. So the, the classic way to think about cybersecurity is, is what they call the CIA triad, which is dated back from you know, when, I, when I first joined the industry. The CIA is basically confidentiality, integrity, and availability, right? So confidentiality being... Can an attacker gain access to information and get eyes on something they shouldn't and benefit from that some way? Integrity is about can they modify data? So the classic scenario is, you know, college student hacks in and changes their grades, for example. And then availability is about operational outage. Like can you bring the company to its knees like a ransomware attack? So, so you think about everything through that lens and then think about who would want to achieve those. And that's very personal to the business, depending on what you're trying to defend. Um, but as we said before, the partners now are a, a big part of this. So when you're thinking about how those things can apply, there's the firm itself that can get compromised. Right? So operational outage, ransomware across everywhere, stopping that business from operating or information being stolen. But there's also the their customers. So if the attacker, the attackers love to target people that they consider to be information aggregators. So if somebody is pulling together information from multiple firms into one location, the attacker could just target that one location to get access to lots and lots of sensitive data from lots of companies in one go, rather than having to target, say, 100 separate companies. Yeah, I guess. And th th does that go back to, uh, I suppose, controlling I mean, controlling your, your vendors, your, your supply chain? Yeah, supply chain is a very, very big topic at the moment. Uh, it's a very difficult one to to manage. But the way we it can become quite overwhelming dealing with cybersecurity and the, the the actual part that we say to people is it's really important to, first of all, think about what are you trying to protect? There's fundamentals that you should do, just general security hygiene across the organization. But then ultimately, think about the scenario that you do not want to happen. Like, is it gaining access to data? Is it brand damage? And then you build your security out from that. And then you focus on vetting the suppliers and the supply chain that could lead to that impact. Brilliant. Really useful. Um, we talked a lot about... Um attack attacks coming from the outside and what about internal threats or you know such as social engineering or tricking the the office front desk to gain access to to building and local yeah, wi-fi no. any good yeah, good question. 
The um, look, you know, as a security professional, I would always say to get everyone to cover all their bases, and she'd need controls for for both. But if you have to pick one through limited resort, limited resort, I'd say start with external. And the reason for that is because everybody in the whole world can attack you through an external attack, whereas internal, you need to be uh, physically within the local kind of area. Um, but the thing with those is that they're very difficult to defend because what you're doing is exploiting human trust. So if we were to, for example, we used to do attack simulations as part of our last company where we'd simulate attacks and we'd often do social engineering engagements. And what you're looking to do is to actually, um, you're inheriting the trust of employees. So for example, if I go and convince a manager of a department that I am who I say I am, when they then hand me off to an employee, that person says, oh, hi, this is Adam, he needs X. That second employee will give you anything you need. Uh, and people generally want to trust people, we find. And just to give you an example about how these these play out, one of my colleagues did a, a social engineering engagement against a company, and um, it was quite a secure facility that was difficult to get into. And he actually went to the effort of creating a, a fake logo, a business card, he had a clipboard with everything done, and he turned up to the, the front desk and he said to them, oh, hi, I'm a health inspector, I'm here to check out the kitchen. Now, that was a really clever move because everybody then just immediately went into alarm mode and they ran off and spoke to the uh, the kitchen staff and said, look, there's a health inspector here. They didn't think about anything at this point. They just thought about the health inspection. And then my colleague, obviously, being a security professional, knows nothing about health inspections, but actually conducted a full fake health inspection, you know, checking that everything was safe in the kitchen. And at the end of that, they said, oh, how do, how do we do? And he, he said, well, I have to go back and write up my report. It usually takes a few days. Um, but if you can give me access to a to a computer, I could do it now and I could tell you today if you like, no problem. So they signed him onto his local computer, cooked him dinner while he sat there hacking the network and gaining access to all the information. And uh, that's how that sort of thing can, can play out. So, yeah, so it's a difficult thing to defend, um, but it's really about building a culture of it's okay to challenge somebody and get evidence from someone as part of the policy. You know, you don't, people like kind of want to be nice, but it's okay to do that and making sure that's built into the culture is really the key way. That's a really, really good point. And actually you see that even from um, screening calls, don't you? People are always trying to be nice, passing a call on. If you're saying, I want to speak to the CEO or CFO, I mean, I get yeah. those calls <laughs> sometimes. And I'm thinking, why am I being passed this call? And it's because the person who received that call was just being yeah. nice. Um, and we need to be to be okay to challenge things. I think that's a really good point. Um, but perhaps to, just to, to wrap up, because this is really, really exciting, um, but we, we are limited by time. But So firms must be aware of the risk they face absolutely uh, ensure they have pro proper systems and controls to mitigate these and, and possibly benefit from guidance that's out there um, but what do you recommend in conclusion with regards to um to i mean i guess you've already touched on the important uh, bits and cia and thinking about the scenarios that you want to protect against i think for me the point that would stand out as well is how do you select a company like push security you know what makes a company reliable there's many it service providers out there and again they could be in themselves a risk you know in terms of you don't know who they are so is there any specific points there that you can give tips on on how to select a company as well yeah it's uh, it's difficult to say in in very general terms because it it becomes quite specific to subcategories in cybersecurity so so the first place if you're really starting out in cybersecurity um, you really want to be talking to a consultancy. 
and somebody who can actually give you advice. And you're like, I used to do in my prior life, which is doing a tax simulations and advisory. And um, those sorts of companies can actually come in and help tailor specific uh, security concerns and, and put together a plan for you. And those companies, there, there are actually um, organizations like uh, Crest, for example, uh, which is a uh, an independent body, which effectively gives a, a company a stamp of approval. And in order to do that, you have to make, meet certain criteria, which includes people, with, you know, consultants within that firm undergoing a, a pretty rigorous and well-respected exam to make sure that they you know, really know what they're talking about when it comes to security. So the, so the Crest certification is a good place uh, to go for that side because you know you're getting a certain level of expertise and you're getting the right advice. In terms of then other vendors and places that you you work, there's obviously the major accreditation. So for example, um, ISO or SOC 2, which is more common in, in the United States, which just says that you are at a certain level, which means that in terms of vetting a partner, you know that their security is a, a level that's kind of uh, reasonable enough uh, to you uh, as, a, as, a, as a side point as yeah, there sure. as well. Uh, it's really good advice for somebody to go for small to medium businesses to focus on cyber essentials, which is a government-backed scheme. And it gives you a stamp of approval that you've approved security. And the good thing about that is that it really just asks you to document the fundamental controls which serves as a good way of knowing what the you know which controls are considered fundamental. Yeah, now that's always been a classic, and in our world, you know, something we're very familiar with. You've got to document your controls. The key thing is is does a SOC two or, or having an ISO in itself, even subject to an ISO review, and I'm familiar more with those. Um, do they also verify that what's documented is actually being applied properly? And those audits um, are done sometimes more or less well, and it's very difficult to know exactly where you stand uh, but they're probably the first you know line of, of defense isn't it so it's, it's a good way to gauge um who you're working with and crest i think that's really helpful as well i wasn't aware of that so i hope that's going to be helpful to our listeners uh, and it sounds like um provides some f- extra comfort on the consultancy that you might work yeah with. Every, everybody anyone who's in my field like we've the number of iso SOC to cyber essentials companies that we've hacked into is endless it, does, it definitely yeah. uh, compliance does not equate to security, but it's a really good foundation, which makes you think about all the controls that are needed, and then you can build up from that. So it's always recommended as, as a step. I, mean, I think my, my last point on that is you need resources, really. You need people who write the documentation and people who follow it through and people who liaise with people like you to be able to keep up to date and, and follow whatever is best practice and have recurring tests. Right. So look, I'm delighted that we've had this chat. Um, I think that the, I'm very excited that we've spoken to an ethical hacker. I've never done that before. And uh, I look forward to the movie <laughs> about all the things that you've done. But in the meantime, many, many thanks to you. Um, and it's great to have had a uh, push security uh, discussing these issues with right. us. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks a lot.